Amen. Thank you, Pastor Luke. Good morning, Conduit. How are you? It's a blessing to be here and to see all of your faces. I hope that you are all enjoying or will enjoy your holiday weekend here. Um, As Pastor Luke mentioned, we are starting a new sermon series this week. Um, And I told I told the um, like I I say every every Sunday morning we meet together downstairs with those who are serving on various teams and volunteering, whether you're in conduit kids or on the in the band or in the sound booth or staff or whatever. And we we pray for the service and we pray for you and we pray for um, uh, we pray for our city and we pray for us as we're getting ready to serve. Anyway, we were talking about this this particular sermon series and I mentioned that. Um, that in you know almost 17, 18 years of ministry now, I have never preached a series. I've preached individual messages, but have never preached a series through the minor prophets. And so as, as has been our, um, our pattern, um, we created a, a helpful booklet for you. They're on the back tables there. If you didn't get one on your way in and you would like to have one, um, you can you can grab one uh, in the front part of that uh, of the book is going to give you some kind of background slash historical um, some theological some chronological timeline type of information about the minor prophets and then of course we have the sections where you can take notes as they're associated with each of the each of the weeks um, and even though this was a, uh, even though this was for me the, the first time that I'm doing a series on this and we'll be in the series, I think, for six weeks or so, I told the team this morning, and I, I will tell you, it's a really easy sermon series for me to preach, um, mainly because I'm going to preach two of them and then, pa- and then I'm going to be gone on sabbatical, and so then Pastor Luke's going to have to preach the rest. <laughs> <laughs> So, so it was a really easy decision for me. Uh, very, very easy decision for me to make. Um, but, uh, so, so listen, my, my hope is that this morning I maybe can kind of, you know, Pastor Luke has done um, the bulk of the work putting, putting this together, and there's a lot of great information here, and so I don't, wanna, I don't want to uh, duplicate too much of that, but I also want you to um, I want you to hear and understand uh, because one of the things that we one of the things that doesn't often get talked about in church and that we think is important here is also for you just to understand um, not from a, like an application standpoint or just a theological, but like what is this what is this thing that we have here? What is this book, right? It's the Bible, right? We have the Bible, and there's often this assumption that everyone knows, you know, where to find a book in the Bible and what that book means and, like, where, where in, like, the historical timeline it sat and so why maybe the author is saying particular things here and there. And, and it's just not always, it's not always self-evident. In fact, oftentimes, it's, um, it's not evident at all just by reading it. Because if you read, for instance, the Bible, you know, you, come, you approach the Bible and say, I've never read the Bible before, so I am going to pick it up and I am going to read it cover to cover. I'm going to start in Genesis and I'm going to read all the way to Revelation. Uh, because we've been taught throughout our entire lives in education that when you pick up a book and read it, you read it from the front to the back, right? That's the best way to get the information that you need. Well, as a pastor, I always, I, I always discourage people from picking up the Bible and reading it from uh, the front to the back if they've, if they've never had, you know, if they've never, never read a Bible before. Um, and the reason being is that is because it can, it can add a lot of, can add a lot of confusion to, well, well, well what is this thing? Like, why, okay, we have like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, right? They like they they kind of all generally have like this historical feel to them, right? They're retelling the story of a 
uh, of the development of the people of God and the, the struggles that they're going through and the times that they are failing and the times that they are succeeding and how, and how God is interacting with them and, and, and how God is sending people to lead them and, and sometimes sending people to really just, quite honestly, just call them out. Um, and so, but then you get into the middle of the Bible and then you have these, these portions of Scripture that sound more poetic, right? The Psalms and the Proverbs and uh, Ecclesiastes and Lamentations, right? That are just like, there's a, there's a genre there. And it's, it doesn't read like a story, it reads like a poem or it reads like a song. It's, there's rhythm and there's rhyme and there's, um, and there's patterns and it's really, it's a really interesting and kind of easy read, but then you get into this section at the end of the old Testament and you're like, I have no idea what these dudes are talking about. And that's where we get into what we call the, the prophetic books or the prophetic literature of the old Testament. And those would be books like the major prophets would be like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. These bigger books, right, that have lots of material. And then you would have what, we, what scholars have called the minor prophets. It doesn't mean like that they were in the minor leagues theologically, right? Or that their messages were any less important. It meant... It had more to do with just the volume of material that was there. It's a way that in the modern world, we've come to separate those two things. The major prophets, lots of words. The minor prophets, not many words, right? Um, and so, few words, right? Few words do trick for, for minor prophets. <laughs> um, so, but the... But if you read them in, a, in trying to like read them straight through, like, okay, I'm going to get this story here, you'll get really confused because they're, they don't seem connected by any historical narrative or story running through. What I want you to get a picture of, and Pastor Luke did a great job of cap, capturing this in the, in the booklet here um, um, on page, no page number, but this one. Uh, um, <laughs> the one with the colors, right? Is to help you see how um, the prophetic, the, the minor prophets in particular, so the ones that we're going to be looking at, like Hosea and Habakkuk and Jonah and Zephaniah and Zechariah and Micah, right? How, how they don't exist in some kind of historical vacuum that we have no idea about or what's going on okay but think of it this way if you can see if you can see all of the books kind of in your mind right like lined up in a row you're going to take like today we're talking about Hosea you're going to take Hosea right and I want you to pick it up in your mind and I want you to move it over to the books of the Old Testament that tell the story of the people of God. Right? And in particular, Hosea is telling the story, or he's existing in and around the book of like 2 Kings, verses 13, 14, 15, 16-ish. And so you pick up what Hosea is saying and what we're going to read today in his, in his book, and you place it over top of what's happening in 2 Kings 13, 14, 15, 16, right? And that's the time period and the context that Hosea is living in and that he's speaking into. That historical time period for the Israelite people or for the nation of God in general was a very tumultuous, um, very like spiritually up and down time. And so when we come to when we come to all of these books that we're going to be talking about, they have they have a time period. There is a context and it's helpful for us to know 
at least in getting our minds wrapped around how the Bible is formed and laid out for us, why it's not always most beneficial or most helpful to read, to start in Genesis and read all the way through Revelation because you have to have in mind kind of like the crossing of contexts and the crossing, crossing of historical periods, okay? And the same exists for the New Testament. The Bible is generally um, organized by genre rather than historical timeline. And that can be helpful for us to know. Hopefully in, um, in uh, time coming we can um, talk a little bit more about that. But in terms of like structure, I think it's an, it's an important thing for us to, to know and, and understand. Okay? Second thing is this, or like, I guess it's like tenth thing. Tenth thing is this. Um, what are the prophets? Because when, when we say prophetic literature, or we say the minor or the major prophets, most of us get an idea in our mind, right? What is a prophet? And I think most of us, in some way, shape, or form, get the idea of like, uh, for lack of a better term, crystal ball. Right? Prophecy is all about decoding the, decoding the signs of the future. And like weeding through all of the mysterious waypoints along the treasure map of the Bible to get to a mysterious endpoint that God is secretly hiding and hoping that we have like our Cracker Jack theological decoder ring that can unlock the secrets of all theology and all mystery and all knowledge for us. And we just need to, we just need to press in to, the, to, to prophecy in order to see into the future. Well, that's not really the biblical model of prophecy at all. Was there some sense of like the prophets um, speaking into the future theological realities of the people of God? Yes, of course there was, right? Uh, for instance, I, Isaiah the prophet speaking about the coming of the Messiah. And uh, for unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given, right? Um, and the government will be upon his shoulders, you know, like... There, there is that, right? But the, the bulk of prophetic material within Scripture is not about future telling at all. It's not about sign reading and decoding the mysteries and getting to the secret knowledge at the end of the treasure map so we know exactly what God wants us to do or, or how He would have us to, to act. Prophets spoke on behalf of God. They were, they were physical and incarnational mouthpieces of God. When there was a message that needed to be communicated to His people or to the leaders or to the rulers of that particular time, the prophet was kind of ordained and set aside by God to do that task. Like, wow, what a great, what a great role to have. What a position of honor. They must have been so highly respected and revered and honored in their times and in their, in their context. Well, actually, the opposite is actually true. Because the message that the prophet usually brought was one of, hey, in case you guys didn't see or recognize or realize, let me put a big spotlight on the treacherous wickedness, idolatry, and spiritual adultery that you are involved in right now. In case you haven't seen it, I want you to know that God sees it. He is calling you to repent or to suffer the consequences of the things that you are doing. If you repent... He will restore you and return you to blessing and favor. Now, this is not a message that was um, very well received 
most of the time. Uh, and he w- and, and, and normally, in fact, um, I'm running aground of having any good examples, but virtually every person in scriptural history who was a prophet was killed by the people because of the message that they brought. Because it was, because it was so offensive to the proclivities that they had like taken upon themselves that like, hey man, we don't like this message and we don't like this guy and, and he's speaking the judgment of God upon us uh, but we really like what we're doing still and so let's get rid of him and let's get rid of him and let's get rid of him, right? In the Old Testament and then listen, the prophet of all prophets was Jesus himself whose message of God's forgiveness through the Messiah, message of God's, God, like of, of turning from your sin and repenting and believing by faith in Him was a blasphemy to the Roman government. And they ended up crucifying Him for it, executing Him. So, so the prophets were never treated well. It was not an honorable role. It was not something that everyone wanted. Right? In fact, most of the prophets were like, uh, God, are you sure that I have to do that? I kind of don't want to. Would appreciate it if you give the job to someone else. I got all these, I got all these things going on, or I can't speak well, or they're not going to like Jonah. I don't really like the Ninevites, and they're not going to listen to me if I go there anyway. So, God, I'm not going to do it. Right? Well, we know how I ended up with Jonah. We'll talk about that in a few weeks as well. Pastor Luke will talk about the story of Jonah. He's going to wear a big shark outfit. <laughs> we had one for BBS, right? We had an inflatable shark outfit. So I've already declared as my kind of final decision as lead pastor before sabbatical that that will be worn and I will be checking. Um, okay, but listen, so I know we're doing a lot of background information and I, I appreciate you sticking with me, but it's important for us to understand these things as we, as we go into this series. Cause if we just go into this series without kind of this ground laid firmly for us, it could be, we, we, we could miss some things. All right. We could, we could miss out some things. Um, so the, the prophets, they illuminated wickedness and sin. They warned the people of the consequences of turning their backs upon God. They called the people to repentance and then they declared the goodness and promises of God for those returning. So for instance, there's examples of this pattern in all of the, in all of our, in all of the prophetic books. We're going to look at like one of the, those examples where Hosea, he kind of crams that whole pattern into one section of scripture that we're going to look at, I think it will be helpful for us to see it, okay? So, Hosea um, is, okay, in your Bible, if you need to, like, look at your table of contents to find Hosea, there's no shame in that at all. In fact, I wrote on my sermon notes here, Hosea is in page 751 on your Bible, Cameron, because if I lose it, it might take me a minute to get it back there, Okay. So I don't know what page it's on in yours, but it's 751 in mine. Not that that's helpful to you. Um, but I want, us to, I want us to go over to Hosea chapter 10. Because in Hosea, chapter 10, in the really... Chapter 10, verse 12. See, the Hosea is speaking to the Israelite people. Okay? And remember this pattern, okay? That there's a standard of holiness that God holds for us and for His people. That the people are involved in wickedness and idolatry and spiritual adultery, right? And He's calling them to repentance. 
or the consequences of their sin is coming and God promises restoration uh, for those who turn and repent of their sin. Hosea chapter 10, sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap the fruit of unfailing love. Break up the unplowed ground for it is time to seek the Lord until He comes and showers righteousness on you. Right? Seek the Lord. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap the fruit of unfailing love. Like that's like the, hey guys, do this. Come on. Like this is God's desire for us. This is God's standard of holiness for us. Reap righteousness. Sow righteousness in our lives. Verse 13 is the, but hey, you have been planting wickedness and you have reaped evil. You have eaten the fruit of deception because you have depended on your own strength, on your many warriors. The roar of the battle will rise against your people so that all your fortresses will be devastated. As Shalomon devastated Beth Arbel on the day of the battle when mothers were dashed to the ground with their children, thus will it happen to you, O house of God, because your wickedness is great. When that day dawns, the king of Israel will be completely destroyed. And then as it goes further into verse 11, we see that God is promising, for instance, His restoration. And like speaking to, speaking to Israel like a child. When, when you were a child, I loved you. I called you out of Egypt. I called you my son. But the more I called, the further you went from me. You sacrificed to the Baals. You burned incense to images. Verse 4, I, I led you with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from your neck. I bent down to feed you. Will they not return to Egypt and will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? Verse 8 in chapter 11. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I treat you like the Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. My com- all my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I turn and devastate you. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come in wrath. So even, even we see here like that, that there's this reflection of this inner tension in the character of God Himself, right? That that there is obviously a turn from Him and a turn towards wickedness by His people. And that that they are reaping, that they are reaping that evil in the destruction of their land, in the in the in their slavery and their captivity to the Assyrian people, right? That God, God uses foreign invading armies, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, right? To come in and conquer the Israelite people and to spread them out in the land and to take all that God has promised them through Abraham. But then he comes into like, but, but, but even that, even in the midst of that punishment for their wickedness and the consequences that they are suffering because of turning away from Him, there is this sense where God even Himself is torn with compassion and kindness and love with a desire so deep to restore them to the, to the love that brought favor and blessing into their lives. When He says, how can I give you up? How can I hand you over? My compassion is aroused for you. I will not carry out my fierce anger, for I am God and not man. I will not come and rest. See, there's this sense of like God is allowing them to experience the consequences of their wickedness. And at the same time, there seems to be this message of like um, gentleness and, um, and how he is like holding back 
on the, on the, on the full pouring out of his wrath and his anger for their wickedness because of his tenderness and love for them. Now, just in this little section is like the giant pattern that we see in almost all of the prophets. Is that there is a significant spiritual, cultural, moral wickedness that has infiltrated into every aspect of the people of God, right? And that God is... God is calling them to repent for that thing and the prophet is pointing that out. But that they are in the midst of suffering the consequences of their moral and spiritual degradation. And that the promise of the prophet through God is that that if they return to God, if they return from their wickedness, if they burn their idols, if they return to the glory of the Lord, if they return to worshiping Him, that He will restore them. And he will give them victory over their enemies. And then he will give them back the land. And that the land will be bountiful and fruitful once again. This was true in Hosea's time. Hosea existed at a historical time where where the Israelites had suffered the consequences of their idolatry by being taken over by the Assyrian people. And the Assyrian people came into Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple and they scattered the people and they gathered around them like, and they, they brought their idols and they basically said, hey, the land that God has given to you as your gift, it's ours now. You can go live somewhere else. And their children were killed and their women were taken as slaves and their men were killed or conscripted into their army. It was a complete destruction of the people. Well, over time, as Israel returned to faithfulness, they regained, through the goodness of God, their independence from the Assyrians. And this was at a point where the Israelites were gaining some autonomy again and some freedom again from this captivity and this slavery. Well, as that freedom came, it led to increased prosperity in the land. The land became bountiful and fruitful again. That increased prosperity and fruitfulness and bounty led to a spiritual and moral and ethical decadence that culturally poisoned all that they were. So that, so that reintroduction of things like worshiping idols and especially in Hosea's time, um, sexual permissiveness and temple prostitution and debauchery was a, was a, like a, a foundational part of the culture in which Hosea was operating as prophet. Now we talked a little bit last week, lest we go too far. We talked a little bit last week about the the modern notion of idol worship, right? Because it's fairly easy for all of us maybe to recognize that, hey, well, yeah, I don't have a little, I don't have a little Baal statue or Buddha sitting in my house that I bow down and pray to and worship every day. So I'm, I'm, I'm good on the idol worship, right? I'm, I'm good on the idol worship thing, right? Well, I, I confess to you that I'm not good on the idol worship thing because I, I, I worship all the time at the idol of like performance, of, of what I can perform, what I can produce, what I can do, how hard I can work, what I can be in someone else's life or for them. And all of my life I scurry around, right? Trying to arrange the, the context of my life so that I'm bowing down at the expectations of others, right? And it's, and it's draining me of my spiritual vitality and energy and focus to worship God and God alone, to bow only upon the, at the feet of Jesus, right? And all the time, right? We, we end up taking the things that run our lives, right? That, our, that are our gods 
and we, we put kind of some spiritual, we almost baptize them in a way to make them like spiritually okay. So like for instance, for when, we, when we're bowing down every day at the idol of work to the degradation of our relationship with Jesus, we say it like, well, no, like my hard work, it honors God. And this is the way that God has given me to provide for my family. And you no, know, this is really my, this isn't work, this is a calling. And so I have to go do it. And I, I need to be there. And I've got to perform. And I've got to produce. And I've got to do. And I've got to do. And i got to do. And i got to do. And I'm, I'm not satisfied just being. And like, listen, God is not impressed. God is not God is not impressed with any rationalization that we can give for the very important things that we are giving our lives to that distract our focus from worshiping him and him alone. He's not impressed. He's not giving you a pass, right? Idol worship is idol worship. Whether it's a little wooden statue that you bow down to every day or it's whether whether it's your inability to say no to something. It is and the rhythmic pattern of God's calling out that idolatry that happened in Old Testament prophetic times still remains true today. If you do not turn from your worship of false gods, repent of that sin, and turn to Him, destruction is coming into your life. And things will start to fall apart. Your family will begin to fall apart. Your resources will begin to fall apart. Everything that you, everything that you relied on and held onto as your security blanket for life. Listen, God will not strive forever to be in a competition of lords of your life. He will tear down and destroy and stomp on with impunity any God that sets itself up as the true God in your life. When we say things like God is a jealous God, we have a very like, that seems like, well, God, I don't know if you know this God, but um, it's not okay to be jealous. Right? Because of course, we approach the idea of jealousy from a worldly standpoint where we're jealous of things because of an inward, deep insecurity about it, right? Listen, God is not insecure at all. God knows exactly who he is and what he's about. He's, he's unapproachable glory, light, and holiness. He speaks all things into existence. When God says he is jealous, God's got a right to be jealous because the ground of all creation and eternity is him. And when he says, I am a jealous God, you will have no other gods before me, it's because he will not tolerate the destruction of your life at the altar of things that are not him. So every prophet kind of has this pet. I don't know. I lost my notes. I, I just completely destroyed. I don't. Like, doesn't make any sense now. Oh, I'm just going to send it, all right? So, uh, yeah. So listen. So every prophet comes to the same, like, to the same, it operates in the same pattern or rhythm. Hosea's story is a really, really interesting one, okay? Because in the first chapter of Hosea, God asks Hosea to do something extraordinary. He says this, Hosea, I want you to go take a wife. Go take a wife, Hosea. And the reading in our English Bibles can be a little bit confusing, right? Because the the kind of way the sentence structure is, it looks like God is asking Hosea to go out and find a, an adulterous woman and marry her then, even though he knows that she's already in adulterous relationships. Well, it's a little bit more appropriate according to like the, the Hebrew structure of that paragraph 
to see it as like God told Hosea, Hosea, go out and you're going to marry this girl. Her name is Gomer. Her parents must not have liked her. I don't know. (laughs) Go out and marry Gomer, okay? And essentially, the way we can read this is, uh, but I want to warn you about something. She's going to commit the sin of adultery against you. Before, I just want to let you know that at the outset. It's going to happen. Mary Gomer, she will cheat on you. She will leave you. She will be an adulterous wife. And Hosea, I don't know, we don't get a whole lot of like the rebuttal. I'd have had a, I'd, I'd, can, I, can I have a comment card about this request, Lord? Because it's not like, really? But he does it, right? And then God says this. He says, Go take yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness. Why? Verse 2. Because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. It's almost like, Hosea, in order for you to be the most significant voice, my voice, to, to the people here, right, who have committed spiritual adultery, the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord, I need you to feel it yourself a little bit. I need, you to, I need you to wear it for a moment. I need, you, I need you to hold it, right? Because listen, I'm sure you've experienced it before, right? That someone in your life has gone through something, something difficult, right? Maybe the loss of a very close loved one. And we say things like, I mean, I'm so sorry. I love you. I understand what you're going through. And if you've never experienced that thing before, do you understand it? No, you don't. You don't understand, right? But we understand the heart of where it comes from, right? It comes from a heart of compassion and understand. Like they want to, they want to, they want to tell us that they, you know, they're so sorry for what happened, and we're here for you, and and whatever. And then you. Some down, somewhere down the line, you go through the same thing. Right? I'll tell you, probably one of the most significant things that happened in my life, right, was when I lost my mom to addiction. Because for years, I had comforted people in the midst of their loss, right, as a pastor. I'm so sorry for what you're going through here. I understand. I didn't understand, right? And you didn't understand because you haven't gone through it yet, when you go through it, you're like, and everything changes for a moment. And you begin to operate in life out of a, out of a place of like authenticity and honesty, um, but deep compassion and kindness for understanding the depth of the pain that someone has gone through. Okay. Right. I got to believe it's the same thing. That the Lord was like, Hosea, for a moment I want you to hold the pain that I experience every time the people choose an adulterous lover over me, their first love. This is, this is what it feels like. This is what it is. This is how. This is how I hold it. And so, when we come to like chapter 2 of Hosea, so Hosea has been told to take an adulterous wife. Like, okay, hold on, right? Because the land is guilty of the most vile spiritual adultery. 
And then they come to chapter 2, and the language of the prophet kind of changes here. So that Hosea is meant to be, or meant to like be portrayed here as, as, a, as a son of the mother that is the Israelite nation itself. So if you picture, picture Israel as the nation, or Israel as the, as the mother or the wife, right, that has turned her back in, in adultery on her husband, God, right? And Hosea now is the son of that adulterous relationship that is coming to speak to his mother who has turned, his, turned her back on her husband, God, right? And God says this to Hosea, rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. Chapter 2, verse 2. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her naked. I will make her as bare on the day she was born. I will make her like a desert and turn her into a parched land. I will slay her with thirst. I will not show my love to her children because they are the children of adultery. Their mother has been unfaithful, has conceived them in disgrace. She says, I will go after my lovers who will give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. Then she will say, well, okay, I guess I'll go back to my husband as at first. For then I was better off than now. Well, she has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and the oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold, which they ended up using for their worship to Baal. Therefore I will take away my grain when it ripens, and my new wine when it is ready. I will take back my wool and my linen intended to cover her nakedness. So now I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands. I will stop all her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all her appointed feasts. I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she, is, which she said were her pay from her lovers. I will make them a thicket, and wild animals will devour them. I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the bales. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers, but she forgot me, declares the Lord. What is, what is God saying here? <laughs> Well, he's saying everything, right? He's saying everything. That, that they have turned their back on me and forgotten all that I have done for them. All that I have given them. All the new oil. All of the grain. All of the wine. All of the land. All of the protection. Everything that I have been for them and have done for them, they have forgotten it in totality and now I'm taking it all back and I will put blockades against future fruitfulness I am putting thorn bushes in their way I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way she will I am bringing destruction to everything that I had given over to her So there was spiritual adultery, right? Then there was the declaration of punishment, okay? Um, which was actively happening in the, in the history of Israel, right? Generations and generations of things being stripped away from them. And then, what's the next in the pattern, Right? Repent and be restored, right? Repent and be restored. Verse 14 of the same chapter, chapter 2. 
Therefore, I am now going to allure her. And I will lead her into the desert. Deserts are not a great place. Okay, Anytime you see an allusion to a desert in Scripture, desert is a place of desolation and emptiness where there is nothing, there is no life growing, right? It is the, it is the both, both the symbolic and actual place of death, right? Nothing grows there. Nothing's good about it. It's a place of evil and temptation and no vitality. I will lead her into the desert and I will speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her back her vineyards. I will make the valley of Echor a door of hope and she will sing as in the days of her youth, as in the day that she came up out of Egypt. Listen, I, I don't... Here's something I think that we often miss in the midst of... Um, Something we often miss when God is tearing down everything in our lives that has caused spiritual adultery and idolatry and has absolutely wrecked us and put us in a desert where there is no life and seemingly no hope and no way forward. And we ask, maybe we yell, maybe we scream, maybe we whimper, Right? In some way we say, Lord, what now? <laughs> and I think the words of Hosea are in, in Hosea here are so like they're a deep breath for me. I think that they're they, they, they sound they feel like an oasis in the midst of a desert. I will lead them, I will lure them into the desert, and I will speak tenderly to her there. I don't know if you feel like maybe you have, you're currently in a desert or you have been in a desert and you can be in deserts for a long time, right? The Israelites wandered in a desert for 40 years before they first made it to the promised land. It's both a actual practical thing that they did, but it's also a very metaphorical analysis of like, hey, man, they were wandering in the midst of their idolatry for a long, 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 long time before they got it, right? And it is in the midst of that desert that God speaks tenderly to us. When we've been stripped and set free from all other things, the place where we can see Him, the place that we can hear Him, the place where we are undistracted by anything else, He speaks tenderly. If you are in a desert, listen for the tender voice of God. And if you hear His voice, turn to Him and He will restore you. Because then what comes is this. Chapter 2, right? We're still in chapter 2. God is re, like, He gave the consequences. Now He's speaking tenderly into the desert. Verse 18. In that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. Listen, verse 19, okay? This is where it really takes, I think, we really capture the idea of Hosea. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. In that day, I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies, and they will respond to the earth. And the earth will respond to the grain and the new wine and oil. And they will respond to Jezreel, and I will plant her for myself in the land. And I will show my love to the one I called, not my loved one. I will say... To those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are our God. And so in the tender mercy of God, stripping down everything that made them walk away from Him, they are built back up and He re 
betrothes them. That's the literal language that he uses. Like, like he, he takes the adulterous wife in re-betrothal and commits his continued faithfulness, compassion, love, provision, and mercy to them. No, I'm re-betrothing you in righteousness and justice and love and compassion. I betroth you in faithfulness. We will acknowledge each other. And then in chapter 3, chapter 3 is very short because it only needs to be. What does he tell Hosea to do? Hey, Hosea, remember what happened? The Lord said to me, Go show love to your wife again, though she is loved by another and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. Must have been some awesome raisin cakes. I don't know. (laughs) That Hosea's actual life becomes the spiritual proving ground of like a, Hosea, I want you to know the depth of my faithfulness and commitment and love to the people. Go and rebetroth yourself to your adulterous wife as well. Chapters 1 through 3 are kind of like Hosea, all 14 chapters of Hosea crammed into three. They tell the whole story, okay? The rest of the book of Hosea, the the whole 14 chapters, kind of go that cyclical pattern again and 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 again, right? And you'll see that if you read it. It's only 14 chapters. I would recommend you read it. It's really like, it's really stark. God's God's insistence in tearing down the idols of our lives. His warning against the against the um, the consequences of idol worship and spiritual idolatry, and then his promise to rebuild us in him, all culminating, and this is where we're going to end, okay? All culminating in chapter 14. And in chapter 14, it is the kind of the ultimate um, like display then of the restoration, you know, the promise of restoration for the people of God. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. So, okay, pause here. Look at me. Um, this is as real as it gets in life, okay? And it becomes, um, it becomes, has become uh, fashionable to declare that, yeah, well, nothing's really wrong anymore. And everything's really okay. And as long as you're genuine in your belief, it doesn't matter what you believe. It does believe, it does matter what you believe. It does. Um, and I don't say that out of, I, I don't say that condescendingly. I don't say that out of anger. I don't say that out of frustration to you or uh, about you or the world. I say that out of warning. I say that in, uh, I don't declare myself to be a prophet because I like my life and would enjoy keeping it. Um, but in the spirit of the prophetic tradition, I would say that that. God is calling his people to holiness. Okay. God calls his people to holiness. And that there is there are consequences. Sometimes extraordinarily significant consequences in your life. When you turn from him and embrace other gods. You say, well, I don't have any gods in my life. I Be careful. Tread lightly and tenderly 
in, and gingerly before the holiness of Almighty God because he does not suffer fools. He will not be mocked. You will reap what you sow. And God, God in his, and, and it's, not a, it's not a function of God's anger or wrath at you. It is actually a function of God's extraordinary love for you to not destroy yourself by giving yourself to false loves and false gods. And so the words of Hosea chapter 14 are, are a little bit more gentle than the rest of the book. If you read it this week on your own, you'll see what I'm talking about. Okay? But they are nonetheless honest and straight to the point. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Assyria cannot save us. We might say, hey listen, your government, not going to save you. Your favorite president or politician, not going to save you. Right? We will not mount war horses, O Lord. We will never again say our gods to what our own hands have made. For in you, Lord, and you alone, the fatherless find compassion. And I will heal their waywardness and love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like a lily. Like the cedar of Lebanon, he will send down his roots. His young shoots will grow. His splendor will be like an olive tree. His fragrance like the cedar of Lebanon. Men will dwell in his shade. He will flourish like the grain. He will blossom like a vine. And his fame will be like the wine from Lebanon. O Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? I will answer him and care for him. I am like a green pine tree. Your fruitfulness comes from me. Listen, verse 9. Who is wise? He will realize these things. Who is discerning? He will understand them. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them but the rebellious stumble in them. If you are rebelling against the Lord, you will stumble and you will fall and he will, he will cause destruction to come upon your life to wake you up to your spiritual idolatry and call you back to worship of him and him alone. The wise will see this. The discerning will understand. But the rebellious will stumble. Turn your hearts, church. Turn your hearts to the Lord. And He will receive you in gentleness and restore you with repentance and restore the, the fruit of blessing to your life. All that He just said in, there in verse 14. Right? You will be shade to those around you, like the cedars of Lebanon. In no other place and in no other way is the mercy and compassion of God in the forgiveness of sins offered to us and displayed than in the cross of Jesus Christ. It is in that act of love and in that act of sacrifice, that the same restoration that we've talked about with the prophets this morning happens now for us. Jesus, on the night that he would be betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and as he met with his disciples, he gave thanks to his heavenly Father for the bread, 
and then he broke the bread. And then he gave it to those around him and he said, take and eat of this, all of you. This is my body which has been broken for you. Do it in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took the cup and he gave thanks to his heavenly Father for the cup and then he gave the cup to his disciples and he said to his disciples, take and drink of this cup, all of you. This is my blood which has been poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink it often in remembrance of me. And so in these mighty acts, Jesus Christ, with the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood, restored all those who would believe by faith in him to God the Father. Not through a theological belief system, not through a building that you come to once a week, not through a pastor that you hear consistently ramble on too long, right? But through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone are you reconciled to God in the midst of your sin. And that by receiving the gift of Jesus Christ that is offered to you in the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood, you would be forgiven and that you would be restored. And the blessing declared upon all those who are called the sons and daughters of God will be yours. You don't need to be a member of this church. You do not need to be a member of any church to take communion with us this morning. You need only to be willing to express on your own volition a faith and belief in the sufficiency and fullness of the broken body of Jesus and the shed blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and desire to receive that gift from God this morning. We each receive those things and we each understand these things according to our own capacity. And that's why we say that your, this table is open for children as well. That we're not, we're not asking you to come to some, like, some degree of theological acumen in order to come up and understand exactly theologically what you're doing here. We believe that we're coming up not based on our knowledge of the Scripture, but on our the inner witness and belief that we have that Jesus Christ has offered himself to us in his body and his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And we want to be restored to God by faith in him. And so we come to receive that gift from him, the gift that has been offered to us. So Pastor Luke and I will stand up here. We will um, we'll like to serve the band first. Um, and then uh, we we'll, we'll welcome you up to come through the center aisle if you like. If you've never taken communion with us or here before or at all, if this is your first time, um, we'll each be holding a piece of bread in a cup. You can tear off a piece of the bread. You can dip it in the cup right there at that moment. Right? And... Body of Christ. And the blood of Christ broken and shed for you. Thank you, Jesus. And you can take communion. If you would like to stay up and pray on either side, you're more than welcome to do that. If not, you can return to the outside aisles to your seat. But if you, de if you desire to respond to the invitation of Jesus Christ this morning for the forgiveness of your sins, we welcome you to come forward and join us in communion. Lord, we remember. We remember the great thing, the great works of your hands, the great words of your mouth. We remember, Lord, what you have done for us and what you have done in us. Lord, we remember the remember the promises for the future. Lord, on, on those things we fix our gaze. Lord, help us to never forget that we might feel the need to turn to a different love. Lord, we are your betrothed. Betroth us in righteousness and faithfulness, Heavenly Father, that 
that our words might be like the dew, the dew of glory and praise on a dry and parched land. Father, we receive this morning this word from your word and we turn our hearts to you to repent that you would restore us unto yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Conduit, you are loved. Be blessed. Have a great week.